every time that I hear the youth band lead us in worship, I'm always so impressed of their ability and willingness to lead us, uh, which is awesome. Well, Merry Christmas. Uh, I was with some people at dinner uh, a couple of nights ago, and there was Christmas music playing on in the background. And, and one of the people I was with was like, this is so silly that they're playing Christmas music. Christmas happened a couple days ago, to which I responded, actually, Christmas just started a couple days ago. That song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, it begins on the 25th and goes all the way through the 5th. And so kids, if you are here thinking, I wish mom and dad would give me gifts more often, you have 12 days to beg them and ask them and request them for gifts. And they should give it to you at a celebration of the birth of our Lord. (laughs) Oh, I love it. Well, I'm going to read our passage this morning, and you guys can follow along on the screen. It comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 23. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in its vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for children and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. And he said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Amen. Father God, we desire for you to speak to us through your word this morning. And God, as we try through the power of the Holy Spirit to hear what it is that you are saying and calling us to, we ask that you would give us the ears to hear and the eyes to see. God, be present with us this morning. Speak through me, God. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. My all-time favorite Christmas... I was sharing this with the students not too long ago, involved my all-time favorite greatest Christmas gift that I received. I remember distinctly walking down the hallway, making that right turn into the living room, and upon my amazement and joy, there was Ninja Turtle heaven sitting by the fireplace. The base, the ships, the cars, the weapons, everything that you could think of Ninja Turtle was sitting there waiting for me 
to play with and to enter into the world, which I was stoked about. Ninja Turtles are my favorite all-time superheroes. Leonardo, the serious one, he is my favorite amongst the four. But any four of them, I mean, they're acceptable to me. One of my great joys is interacting with kids who love Ninja Turtles today, and I'm like, hey, you and me, we're like right here. We're like on the same level. But having been a fan of superheroes from my childhood all the way up till now, I just I watch the superhero movies all the time, all the comic book movies. You always end up getting into uh, debates, hotly contested debates about who the most super who the most powerful superhero is of all time. And everybody has an opinion about this, right? Every young boy who's read a comic book or seen a movie or watched a TV show, anybody, young girl, young boy, whatever, has an opinion about who the ultimate superhero is. Who is the most powerful? Superman? Yes. I see. Greg, a grown man, has an opinion on Thor? Silver Surfer, The Incredible Hulk, Iron Man, Flash, and there's a list of many more that we could debate about. And although this may be a question for our younger congregants this morning, we would do well to remember that young children reading comic book years ago are now creating Hollywood blockbusters of these childhood memories. But what about supervillains? Supervillains of all time. Who are the most powerful supervillains of all time? We struggle a bit more to deal with the supervillains because we don't like to read or we don't really read the stories because we like villains, hopefully. But Lex Luthor, Doctor Doom, the Joker, Carnage, Magneto, Green Goblin. Who is the most powerful supervillain of all time? Comparing superpowers is a fascinating undertaking. There is much to take into consideration. What's more valuable in determining one's level of power? Super speed or super strength? What do you think? Super speed or super strength? One, two, three. Wow, so strength. I hear mostly strength, but I hear Teresa's like, no, no, it's speed. It's speed over here in the front. All right, how about this? What's more valuable in determining one's level of power? Invisibility or flight? One, two, three. Ooh, that one, we're a little split. We're a little torn here. I hear some invisibility. I hear some flight. Uh, what's more valuable? Uh, determining one's level... Blah, 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 hold on. Sorry. It, brains or brawn? I hear brawn right down here. Like, it was not just like brawn. It was like, brawn? What are these people thinking? Nobody needs brains to have power. <laughs> Last one. What's more valuable in determining one's level of power, laser vision or x-ray vision? Ooh, a lot of hesitant answers there. A lot of laser, though. A lot of laser. Sounds like Superman is kind of like moving his way up the ranking there, Greg. And the list that we can, you know, kind of go through these questions goes on and on and on. You see, the tales of heroes and villains are fascinating and compelling stories to us, due in large part of their depiction of a story we have all experienced internally and have all witnessed externally, the struggle between good and evil. A fascinating element in our retelling of this struggle in comic books and their cinematic equivalents is that the difference between the superhero and the supervillain does not lie in their level of power, 
but their intentions for their power. Both have superpowers. Their powers could be described as strong, mighty, and forceful. Along with these powers comes a certain level of authority or control or supremacy. And we all know with great power comes great... (laughs) And those with power and responsibility are our heroes. Those with power and irresponsibility are, are our villains. Starting in 2009, Forbes magazine started to put out a ranking system of the world's most powerful people. In their own words, the list is a, quote, annual snapshot of the heads of state, CEOs, and financiers, philanthropists, and NGO chiefs, which I had to look up what an NGO was, non-governmental organization, billionaires and entrepreneurs who truly rule the world, who truly rule the world. The top three most powerful people in the world, we may not be surprised to discover, or maybe we will be. Number one, Vladimir Putin. Number two, Barack Obama. And number three, Xi Jinping, which is the general secretary of China. And our thinking is that if these individuals, if individuals that we consider to have power, those with political strength, those with economic might and military force, those with authority, supremacy, and control would only exercise it with the correct intentions, then our world would be a better place. That like our comic book heroes, good would save us from evil. But it is not better intentions that we and our world need to be saved from evil. We need a better power. And we're reminded each year at Christmas that the gospel, which is the saving power of God for all who believe, does not come to us in the form of worldly power, but in the child of Jesus. In our gospel reading this morning, we see two plans, two powers intersecting and colliding with one another. That of Herod and that of God. Herod had discovered a threat to his power from the three wise men, and so he plots to protect his rule and reign. Herod exercises his power by devising a plan, giving orders, and being proactive. God exercises his plan by sending his son into the world and fleeing from threat. Herod appears to wield real power, while God's power seems illusory, but appearances can be deceiving. And this morning, I want to look at a few ways, three ways, that the appearance and reality of God's power differ. And the first is this. God's power appears weak, but is actually potent. God's power appears weak, but is actually potent. God, fascinatingly enough, does not speak in our gospel text this morning. He has sent His Son, Jesus, into the world. His Son is being threatened. Literally, His life is being threatened. And God never speaks. The silence of God in this story might be troubling to some, perhaps a sign of weakness or lack of power. If God is almighty, why is He silent? Why do Joseph, Mary, and Jesus have to flee under the threat of violence? Why is our Lord's earthly family forced to change hometowns out of fear? Why does His family have 
seemingly no game plan. God's silence in our world today is puzzling to many and has led more to even doubt his existence. If God is powerful, why doesn't he rid me of my addiction? Why doesn't God fix our family? If he is the Almighty One, completely powerful and omniscient, why doesn't God force people to do what he wants? Why doesn't God exercise power in the world like Herod? You see, there's part of us, right? I mean, I, there's part of me, at least. I can speak for myself. There's part of me that wishes God would exercise his power in a forceful way. Sometimes we long, or I long, that God would speak from his throne in heaven and decree that there will be no more sin, there will be no more suffering, there will be no more evil in the world. Don't we all sort of wish that on some level? I hope we do, right? I think to not is to not be human. But this is not how God has chosen to bring about his dream for the world, his vision for the world. It is not how God is going to, has chosen to establish his kingdom, his rule on earth. If there is anything that our series through the story has revealed to us about God's work in the world, it's that he consistently uses the foolish things in the world to shame the wise. God consistently uses the weak to shame the strong. And God consistently uses that which is low and despised to bring about his purposes. God chose a feeble old man by the name of Abraham to be the father of his people. He chose a stuttering, insecure Moses to lead his people out of slavery. He chose a young shepherd boy to defeat a giant and establish his people. And he chooses to use a baby in Bethlehem to redeem all of creation. This is how God has always and will always exercise his power in the world. Through foolish, weak, lowly, and despised people who have nothing more than faithful obedience to offer him in return. It is through them that God conquers enemies and overcomes evil. And if you fit into the category of weak, foolish, lowly, and despised, we can rejoice at this good news. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I fit into all of those categories. You see, though our modern world is vastly different from the world of Abraham or Jesus, the power of God is still exercised in this way. It was just weeks ago that the world grieved the death of a former inmate, used to inspire and transform a people, country, and world. Nelson Mandela once stated, if there are dreams about a beautiful South Africa, there are also roads that lead to their goal. Two of these roads could be named goodness and forgiveness. Strangely, the vision that Nelson Mandela had for South Africa did not involve the threat of violence or forceful, I don't know, uh, punishment to be given to those who do wrong is that the dreams Mandela had for South Africa and the dream God has for his creation cannot be attained by force or worldly power, but through people armed with truth, righteousness, peace, salvation, and faith, or the armor of God. Through that which appears weak, 
but actually exerts transformational power. God's power appears weak, but is actually potent. The second thing that we see about God's power through the Christmas story is that God's power appears impractical, but is actually purposeful. God's power appears impractical, but is actually purposeful. In recent months, I have come to the conclusion that the age gap between me and the students in this church, and in any church anywhere, is increasing. Uh, I was a lot closer to their age five years ago than I am today. It's funny how time kind of works that way. When they stay the same and I keep going. One of the primary reasons I have taken note of this uh, more recently is not the fact that I've realized I graduated college before most of them, you know, started kindergarten, but uh, because references to the culture of my childhood uh, no longer like, oh yeah, I understand that. Like, it's just like over their head all of the time. Music, movies, TV shows, technology. The world I grew up in is not the world they are growing up in. I remember in high school still having to sit in my room, if I wanted to listen to the music I wanted to in the car, I would have to sit there with a cassette tape and like record a mixed cassette tape, right? Now they have CDs, MP3 players, playlists. I had none of that. VHS players, pagers. I remember the day before cell phones, and that was like the cool thing in middle school was to have a pager, which my parents never let me have. Thanks, <laughs> mom. Everybody else did. I don't know why they did. They couldn't make phone calls, but it was like, I know somebody wants to talk to me, right? I remember the days when MTV still played music, and that's no longer the case. <laughs> I remember life when you actually had to be at home at a certain time to watch your favorite TV show because there's no DVR, there's no streaming, there's no any of that. There's no like, here's the seasons on DVD. It's like, no, you missed it, and you have to wait like a month to get the rerun if you miss it. Not too long ago, I made a, uh, a wax-on, wax-off reference that was met with blank stares and confusion. <laughs> and I looked at him, and I was like, hey, the Karate Kid, you don't know the Karate Kid. And they're like, is that the movie with Will Smith's son and Jackie Chan? I'm like, no, that's like way down the road. That's like Land Before Time 15, but Karate Kid version, like what the heck? And so I promptly began to explain, like having to explain, like this is wax on, wax off, is that there is this story of Mr. Miyagi, and he, you know, he meets this guy, Daniel's son, right? And Daniel wants to learn karate. And so, you know, Mr. Miyagi takes Daniel and he, he tells him, you're going to paint the fence, but you're going to paint the fence in a really specific way, right? Like, meh, meh. Like, we all know the motions, right? And so then Daniel paints the entire fence and he's really frustrated or whatever. And then the next task that Mr. Miyagi gives Daniel is he, he has him wax his car. And so he has to put the wax on and then take the wax off, put the wax on, put, take the wax off. And I was like, but here's the genius behind Mr. Miyagi, why you should know Mr. Miyagi and his legend, is that although Daniel was painting fences and waxing cars, he was actually learning karate, right? Is that Daniel, right, gets to the end of that. He's like, I'm not doing any more chores. I'm not doing anything else. And Mr. Miyagi shows him that actually painting fences and waxing cars teaches his body the basic movements necessary, necessary to defend himself in karate, right? And then you're like, whoa, like Mr. Miyagi is the man. I want one of those guys in my life, like teaching me all sorts of things. 
<laughs> um, you see, every Christmas, we celebrate and are reminded that God's solution for the world and its cosmic spiritual problems is something incredibly impractical. At least, we think so. It is that there are these cosmic issues and problems with the world that we call evil and sin, and God's solution for that, or response to that, is a crying newborn in Bethlehem. Our world is full of sin, suffering, pain, sorrow, and God's solution is an infant. And I imagine a crying one. But just as we see, God has a history of using the weak things to do strong things. We can see a pattern of God implementing plans that seem impractical, but actually end up working out. That he actually was intentional and purposeful for having his people do certain things that seem completely ridiculous. Noah, the world is evil and corrupt. I am sad and grieved that I created the world. So I want you to build a boat. I am like Noah's like, a boat? What's a boat? And, and God's like, just build it, a boat. And, and Noah, I imagine, is thinking, God, how does a floating wooden vessel save the world from evil and corruption? Moses, I want you to take the Israelites and walk in the circles in the desert. I want you to go take them into the desert and walk around for 40 years in a circle. God, you just did like burning bush. You did plagues. You did parting of the Red Sea. Now you want us to just walk around in circles. You see, the sound of these initial plans by God seem terribly impractical and useless in the face of the challenges and problems that face his creation and his people. But these exercises of his power prove to be anything but futile. God, through the building of a boat, is able to preserve his creation instead of destroying it entirely. The Israelites, who soon after being set free from slavery, decide that they're going to live disobedient lives in the face of God's commands, uh, get a lesson in discipline, obedience, and faithfulness by walking around in the desert for 40 years. It prepares them for the faith needed to enter into the promised land. And Jesus enters into the human experience. His taking on human nature enlightens us to the fact that God does not stand at a distance from us, condemning us for our failures. Rather, we discover God who seeks out His creation, who understands the difficulties we face in temptation, who grasps the reality of suffering and sorrow in the world, and perhaps more importantly, in taking on human nature, is able and decides to endure the full weight of the consequences of sin. It is through this impractical plan, a practical implementation of power, that God is able to redeem all of human life. It is through living a human life that God redeems all of human life. Although God's power appears impractical, it is actually purposeful. Last thing is this. God's power appears delayed, but is actually progressing. God's power appears delayed, but is actually progressing. On the surface of our passage this morning, 
It seems that Herod's plot to seek the life of Jesus impedes, delays, and detains his family and God's mission. Ironically, though, forceful intentions do nothing but to accelerate the timetable of God's mission to be lived out through Jesus. Herod's murderous plotting leads Jesus and his family to Egypt, which, ironically and coincidentally enough, is a place the prophets declared the Messiah would come out of. The violent threat of Herod's son forces Jesus and his family to move to a town to seek refuge and safety. But it was God's intention that Jesus be a Nazarene. And it is God's intention that you be a Nazarene. I'm just saying. <laughs> when Whenever somebody, I get this all the time, like, I'll say, like, oh, I, I work at Coast Community Church of the Nazarene. And I always get met with a question like, what's a Nazarene? I'm like, Jesus was a Nazarene, and so should you. People, all your other denominations, inferior to us here at Coast Community. We really follow our Lord. <laughs> you see, from Joseph's perspective, God's power is being slowed down by the powers of this world. In reality, though, God's power is progressing step by step, inch by inch. Christmas is only the beginning of the story that will come to a climax on Good Friday and Easter. And unlike our experience reading about Jesus' life, it wasn't a 30-minute read to move from the incarnation to the crucifixion to the resurrection at the beginning of Matthew's Gospel to the end. It was actually 30 years of living and time that took place between those events. One of my greatest frustrations, personally, in the Christian life is that progress is unbearably slow. Unbearably slow. My thinking for so long, maybe it's because I live in a real like instant society, or maybe it's just my personality, but my thinking is that, like, why doesn't God just come down here and just completely change everything? Well, why doesn't he just kind of change my desires, remove all temptations, and then I would be this nice, pretty Christian that I, I will desire and long to be. But we should remember that the road from infancy to adulthood, from immaturity to maturity, has never, ever been quick or immediate, physically or spiritually, is that moving from a young Christian to a mature Christian always spans more time than we would like. Adolescence always spans longer than a parent would like, right? But this is just part of the reality of growth and progress, is that although it seems to be not going anywhere, one of the great joys of being a bit older than many of my students now is that I've lived long enough where I can begin to see all of the ways in which God was shaping and crafting my experiences, education, relationships, and guiding me to be at this point in my life. And things that I thought in the moment, like, wow, this is a really tedious experience. Why am I here? actually shaped me and formed me in such a way that God is now able to do the things he desires to do in and through my life. 
And that's one of the great joys of being an older person, young people. <laughs> is that you can look back and you can see like, oh, this is what God was doing to progress his will forward in my life and through my life. You see, this is the secret to understanding God's power at work in our lives. God doesn't magically make things happen or take things away, but he gives us the grace and power to conquer things through faith over time. God's power appears delayed, but is actually progressing. God's power is not like the powers of this world, but it is the only kind of power that can transform and change individuals, communities, and creation. It's the only kind. One of the challenges we face in drawing on God's power in our own lives and in our world is that it requires us to do something that seems incredibly counterintuitive. As Americans, we understand that, that power is something that you go and get. It is not coming to you. you got to be proactive, and you got to go grab it, clasp onto it, take it as your own. That's worldly power. But God's power isn't taken. It is received. God's power is received primarily through prayer. On the surface, prayer appears weak, impractical, and slow. How can stillness, quiet, sitting in a room, not doing anything, talking to a being that you can't even see physically, how can that move us to a place of progress, growth, achievement, maturity, and accomplishment in the Christian life. But it is the chief way that God's people are able to receive the grace and power needed to experience personal transformation and to become an agent of transformation in the world. This is why after Jesus' ascension, he instructs his disciples, go to Jerusalem and sit in a room. And I imagine that was very confusing, like, don't we have things to do? No, go to Jerusalem and sit in a room until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It is why Jesus spent so much time in prayer and solitude in his life. Why he could be found in the garden praying before the trial that would lead to his death. Because God's power is received through prayer. It is why Paul instructs the early church to pray without ceasing, and it is why many of us lack the power of God in our lives. We do not pray. The uh, youth ministry in our Sunday school class, we were studying the book of Mark. I may have made reference to this before, but bear with me. And there's this fascinating story in the book of Mark in chapter 9 in which there's a man who has a son who's possessed by demons. And he brings his son to Jesus and is like, will you heal my son? And Jesus ends up healing his son or whatever. And what you find out in the middle, yeah, or whatever, right? That's not the important part of the story. But what you find out in the midst of Mark chapter 9 is that this man had brought his son to Jesus' disciples. And Jesus' disciples were unable to cast the demons out of his son. And so the disciples, very confused on why Jesus could do it, and they couldn't, 
which you're like, duh, right? Like, he's Jesus, right? They go to Jesus and they say, why weren't we able to cast out the demon? And Jesus says, uh, this one could only be cast out by prayer. You see, if we actually crave the power of God in our lives, we will be people of prayer. How often do you spend time in prayer? For your family, for your marriage, for Santa Barbara and Galita, for poverty in the world, for suffering, for human trafficking. Some of these things cannot be dealt with without prayer. God's power comes on His people through prayer. Although Jesus and Herod have very little in common, they do share one thing. They are both kings. Herod ruled and reigned temporally on earth. His kingdom was marked by all the traditional characteristics of earthly kingdoms. Violence, force, coercion. Jesus rules and reigns now and forever over the whole of creation. His kingdom is marked by holiness, love, and grace. The hope that comes to us every Christmas season is that the power of God, so different from the powers of the world, could, like it did in Jesus, break into our lives and into our world powerfully, purposefully, and progressively. Father God, we thank You for the hope that we have in Jesus, the hope that we have in Christmas. And as we venture on from here in the Christian calendar, we ask God that Your power would be made evident to us as we become a people of prayer. God, we desire personal transformation, but more than that, we desire the transformation of the world. We desire to see Your reign and Your kingdom rule supremely in its rightful place. And so God, we thank You for Jesus. We thank You that You bear His life in us this day. Have Your way with us, God. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.